If you have a connection to languages, this is the podcast for you. Whether you're a language learner, a language teacher, a language researcher, or anyone who's interested in languages. I'm Dr. Caitlin Zavaleta, and alongside Dr. Marie-Josée Bisson, we are The Language Scientists, and this is our podcast. We are senior lecturers in psychology at De Montfort University, and we conduct research into the area of language learning. Throughout this series, we hope to translate the science behind language learning into informative and useful practical advice. So sit back and enjoy. Now, today we are joined by Professor Neil Kenny from University of Oxford, who is joining us today for a chat about how we can revive language learning in the UK. So welcome. Thank you. So just to give a brief introduction, Professor Kenny is a professor of French at University of Oxford and a senior research fellow in All Souls College. Professor Kenny holds another t- role that is central to him being here today, and he is lead fellow for languages for the British Academy. This means that over the last few years, he's focused a lot of his time and mental energy on language policy. So as part of our guest's introductions, we always ask how they've kind of carved their way into studying languages. So Neil earned his undergraduate degree in modern languages in French and German at Cambridge University, followed by his DPhil at University of Oxford in French. So with that, let's go ahead and get started. Thank you so much for coming, and we're really excited to have you here on the podcast. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks, Caitlin. Now, we always ask everyone about their language backgrounds, so I have a feeling French is involved. (laughs) So could you tell us the languages that you speak? Sure. So I speak French, and which I I learned at school, and um, I also learned at school German, and then I studied both of them, as you just mentioned, at university for, for my degree. And um, apart from that, I've had a go at Italian. I've tried to try to learn some Italian um, here and there. And there's a couple of languages that I don't speak, but that I read. Um, so one is Latin that I started learning at school. And I, I keep on using it and trying to make it better because I do research on the 16th and 17th centuries when people used enormous amount of Latin just for all kinds of purposes and and also recently for similar reasons I've tried to learn ancient Greek so so to read some some ancient Greek as well. Oh very cool I mean I know <laughs> so I got into languages because I liked French and that it was kind of like kid of the candy store of oh you mean I can do a whole degree where I can study more of them yes thank you. So I understand the, uh, oh, well, I've started with this, and now now we've moved on to these other languages as well, especially when you get to use those in your, your actual work, right? Yeah, I guess it's like any any way you have of continuing to use a language, whatever it is, whether it's going there, whether it's um, watching things on, on telly, whether it's, um, in my case, for research purposes as well, it's the using that, that helps you to keep it, certainly. Having said that, don't worry if you haven't used it for a long time because you know I've gone through periods say with my German that I've used it very very little but then it's amazing how it does come back gradually with a bit of concerted effort yeah yeah it's still there it's in the background we just need to kind of encourage it to root again yeah so how did you go from studying French and German and then deciding to use that as part of your career well I wanted to continue doing research. I really loved doing research. And I was, um, what what got me into studying modern languages in the first place, I think, was 
not so much the first days of learning it at school because sometimes I found it a little bit tough going that perhaps in those days it's quite a long time ago it wasn't always taught in in the most exciting way but it really was when I started speaking to people and particularly for me started to read read books in a language I thought oh this is great because I love reading books now I can read them in different languages and so um, I really got quite immersed in that when I was an undergraduate so it's just a natural extension then really wanting to go into that more deeply in in a, through a doctorate and for me it's just a question of well which which period what kind of things do I want to want to study so I ended up studying the 16th and 17th century mainly because I read some really exciting books about that period and um, there's a thinker Michel Foucault and he really inspired me and it made me realize you you didn't have to do contemporary things in order to be very contemporary that there's lots of today's questions which we can ask through looking at the literature and the writings of past periods as well because they were worried about many of the same things that we're worried about today. Yeah, that's an excellent point. I remember that feeling pretty relevant. So I had had my uh, French, French was my minor at university. Mm. So we went through all of those reading the literature and, and going through. And it, it also felt to me like um, a good way to understand the culture, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really important point that <clears throat> learning a language is not just about learning the words it's your gateway to a culture, to a different world, to a different way of seeing things. I've just mentioned similarities between contemporary concerns and concerns from the past, but often it's the differences as well that are just as exciting. And that make you turn back on your culture from where you're coming from and think, hmm, my way of seeing things is not the only possible way. I might be used to it, but that there may be other interesting ways. I might not want to adopt them as mine, but they make me more aware of what my ways are, if you like. Yeah, I think that's a great way of putting it. So one thing that we uh, have you here today for is to discuss language policy. Hmm. Um, now, could you first first and foremost just explain what we mean by language policy? Um, what does that include? So it includes especially education. So how much languages are young learners able to learn? obliged to learn as part of their education and what what form does that education take they're really really fundamental questions and that goes right through the different phases from primary learning to secondary schools for some it then goes on to say to further education and to higher education but it doesn't just stop there it doesn't just stop with with education it also goes into the wider area of skills that you're going to use in the workplace, that you're going to use in other areas of life, like leisure and so on. So I think the idea that it's to do with lifelong learning rather than just something you do in formal education in school is really, really important. But policy means how, rather than just sitting back and seeing what, what happens, how can you as a society be a bit strategic about that to support people, to give them the opportunities when if you just leave the system to its own devices, perhaps some will get those opportunities much more than others. So it's trying to be fair, trying to really maximize the amount of opportunity there is for language learning, I think, across the board. So it's essentially looking at how things are right now in the natural ecosystem of how we choose to spend our time and then deciding, OK, how can we help encourage it? What are the plans? What are the steps that we want to take to try to develop that. 
that's absolutely right. And and another thing you need to bear in mind, which I, I should have said a moment ago, is not just what's good for the individual, because that's really, really crucial for language learning. It's absolutely fundamental to core education, to individual development, as much as literacy, really, or, or maths, I, I would say. But also, collectively, as a society, as a nation, or in the UK, as a set of four nations, what are our collective needs in terms of language capacity as a society? Um, what range of languages do we need? Um, how much expertise do we need? And so it's asking those questions at a, in policy terms at a collective level of national need as well. So it's both at the individual level and at the collective societal level. That's a great point. Now, with your work, is it typically just based in England itself? Uh, do each of the countries have their own focuses or is it at the UK at the larger uh, level? It's at the UK, the larger level. So as, as you mentioned at the start, I'm doing this work on behalf of the British Academy with, with many, many colleagues within the Academy, but also many, many other stakeholders. And yeah, as the name says on the tin, that's, that's not just England, that is the four jurisdictions as well. And they each have a different kind of language ecosystem. All four have a different ecosystem. They have lots of common concerns, partly because um, to differing extents, they're English dominated societies, so they have that, that in common. But um, education as an area of policy, of government, is on the whole, at schools certainly, devolved to the different administrations, the four jurisdictions. So there are different decisions that get, that get taken in relation to language policy by governments in those four different jurisdictions as well. So it's quite complicated. It's a huge amount in common, but, but different kind of policy landscapes, policy challenges, ecosystems, different rates of learning languages as well, I think, in those different jurisdictions. So on a high level, what would you say are the similarities and differences between the four jurisdictions? I'd say the similarity is that point about having the challenge that all English-dominated countries have, that English is a global language. Um, how do you nudge people out of this incorrect assumption that English is enough? That's, that's a challenge shared by other English-dominated countries, whether in North America or Australia, wherever. Um, and I think the challenges are fairly similar in that, I, I suppose I would say that across the board, it's desirable, in my view, and, and many of us think that, for everyone to learn a language other than English up to the age of 16. But that's that used to be close to being achieved in England, say, 20 years ago, it was about three quarters of 16 year olds were taking a GCSE in a language other than English. At the moment, it's it's below 50%. It's sitting there. And, you know, the different levels in different jurisdictions. For example, in Wales, the situation is different because everyone is obliged to be learning Welsh up to the age of 16. Not necessarily taking a GCSE in it, but they're obliged to be, to be learning Welsh as well. So obviously, that's perhaps English plus Welsh. And so the room for a further additional language in the curriculum is sometimes a bit more squeezed. So levels of learning that extra language, which now in Wales they interestingly call an international language, 
there are different mm. words that we use for, 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 for languages other than English. They call them international languages. The levels there um, can be lower at times because of that particular situation in Wales, which I know they're, they're working on. So there's all kinds of different situations across the UK in relation to these languages like Welsh or like, like Irish or like Gaelic that sometimes people use the label of indigenous UK languages, although all these, these labels um, can be debated. But um, so there are different, whereas in England, the situation is a bit different. You, you don't have that to the same extent, that issue of indigenous languages. You have many, many other languages being spoken, of course, in England. And that's perhaps another point to make, to really to emphasize that the UK is a thoroughly multilingual country. I keep on saying it's English dominated, but thoroughly multilingual, hundreds of languages spoken. 1.6 million um, pupils in England are estimated to have a language other than English in their background at home or in their community. Um, so, and that's a wonderful thing. And so that's a whole other area we could talk about. That's a fantastic resource that we should and could make better use of. But that's an issue that cuts across all four nations as well. That's an excellent point um, as far as those that are learning the languages at home and how that kind of fits into the puzzle for sure. So I feel like this is a leading question because, of course, we all are very excited about language learning and we all we, we learn languages. We use languages in our day to day life. We use it at home. We use it at work. But it, it takes so much time and energy. And, and you touched on this a little bit earlier. You have to put in so much work to kind of learn the words, to learn the grammar, to be able to use it, to use it at, on your own, to just comprehend ideas, to comprehend what someone's saying to you, and then to figure out how to express yourself in another language. So given the amount of work that is involved, why should someone go about learning a second or a third language? First of all, I'd say that there's quite a misapprehension sometimes that people are thinking, you know, if I can't speak quite fluently after a certain amount of time, a few months or something, then I've failed. Um, but you're absolutely right to emphasize that this is it's a, it's a slow, gradual process over years. But the really important second misapprehension, I think, to, to nail on the head to, to counter is that um, it only, you only succeed if you learn to speak fluently or if you can read easily and so on. That's really not the case. Any any language learning that you do is valuable for your brain, for your outlook, for all kinds of for all kinds of reasons. Um, so that's I think that's what we need to do is value any learning. If it's a few weeks, if it's a few months, if it's a year, that's all extremely extremely useful. And and I think the reason for that is that the very process of learning a language gives us a huge amount. That's why it should be part of core education up to the age of 16. It gives us this empathy, first of all, that whenever throughout our lives, the UK is an incredibly multicultural, multilingual society. Even if we never go to any other country, we're going to encounter lots of languages, lots of speakers of other languages. So having had a go ourselves gives us that empathy. Oh, we understand that it's not just someone whose English is not perfect, is somehow uh, less intelligent or anything. We can see what they're facing. And it also makes us curious, I think, to, to, that once we try to get our mouth around different sounds from those that we're brought up to, that's an unforgettable experience, however much you progress beyond that level. And also, there's been research showing that it helps with things like 
your attention, just focusing your attention on certain aspects of language learning, on multitasking, it gives you that, strengthens that, that skill. There's some research that suggests it helps with creativity as well. And all, all of that before even getting to the point of the question of, well, these things are actually quite useful as well. It's really useful in many ways to, to use the language and fun to use the language and so on. I think um, I, I, the other day I was looking at some quotes from some kids at primary school who were learning languages and saying why they um, were enjoying doing what they were doing. And they had some great answers to your question, Caitlin. They were saying, oh, it's, it's, it's really fun to to speak and think I could go to a country and actually speak to someone in, in their language. It's really fun to learn about, going back to the point you made about cultures, to learn things are done differently. Words are, don't map on to each other in the same way in differently in different languages. And um, yeah, so they had all kinds of great answers to, to, that, to that question. But I think there's no single answer, just a huge range of different answers. And that's before you get to the more kind of official type answers about the, the usefulness of it, which we can come on to. But obviously, languages have huge numbers of uses as well. Yeah, I mean, so I love that you gave quotes from primary students as, oh, it's really fun to do this. And that's exactly what I would say to somebody. It's why I like to learn language. Oh, it's really fun to learn new words and to be able to use them and go to a country and say things that I want to say. That's and, great that that's like universal. Yes. And, and I think that you need to be prodded by your school, by your education to see the value of these things. If I can go back to the question of so learners in a primary school or a secondary school who have a language other than English in their own heritage, family or, or, or community to background. Um, there, are, there are interesting new initiatives now that are trying to encourage the mainstream school that they're at to bring some of that knowledge they have into the classroom. For example, by comparing words in their home language in English plus in the L3, you call it technically, the, the third language that they may be learning at school to think about differences between the the words for the same thing and there are there, there is a program called wallow world of languages language of the world that is developing very interesting material for, especially for primary but also for secondary schools enabling teachers to um to do this with with their learners and again those kids that i was um reading their quotations of about they actually loved that sort of thing they, they, they made them view their home language in a completely different way to value it, but see it as interesting, as connected up to the world of languages, which is the, the name of that particular initiative, um, in a way that is completely different from if they just stop speaking it at the school gates. Sometimes research has shown they might sadly be even a bit embarrassed by it. It's something just for the home, it's very low status and so on. But to see it, to bring it into the classroom, perhaps to get someone from the Saturday school where they might be learning language, come into the mainstream school speak the language at an assembly or something, perhaps put up some notices around the school in that language that sparks conversations. All of that, I think, changes people's perceptions, both their own perceptions, but also then their classmates' perceptions of, um, I think it's about one in five learners in schools in England are are learners who have an additional language. That, as you know, they're, they're often called English as an additional language learners. But then the other four-fifths, it's fantastic for them to, as a way of then appreciating and valuing this diversity that is under their very noses in their own community, if you like. And incidentally, this is a long answer, but I'll stop after this last point. But 
I just used that um, phrase EAL, English as an additional language, that is often used very understandably as a shorthand for, for these kids, some of whom do, particularly if they're new arrivals, need some support with English. But that's only one way of looking at them, because it, it's not so much that they just have English as an additional language, or what about the language that they have in addition to English? That If we start from thinking of things from that point of view, that's an amazing linguistic resource that's right under our noses and that we, as a nation, don't really use enough. I think you really pointed out that it's a strength that these students are bringing into the classroom. They're yeah. able to bring this all of this experience. Let's say it's a class of 30 students. One student comes in, and based on your odds, it'd be more than that. One student comes in and they have this experience of another language, and they're able to see these patterns and these connections between languages. And because of that, the other students are then seeing all these patterns and connections. So you're right. Not only is it a benefit for the individual, but it's a benefit for the community at large, isn't it? Absolutely. And actually, to, to do a little bit of a tour of the UK, I've mentioned England, I mentioned Wales. Scotland is, is very interesting in this respect because, again, they've had a very distinctive languages strategy for the last decade or so. And they call that the one plus two strategy, where... Again, to use the jargon, your your L1, for many people, that'll be English for most, then gets added to by an L2, which you start learning quite early in primary school. And eventually you add an L3 to that. So it's a very ambitious program. Lots of challenges to it, but they've put funding into it. They've trained primary school teachers more. It's still very much in, in process. But the reason I'm mentioning it now is that these home and or heritage languages have often featured as an L2 or an L3 in Scotland. So it's not as if that um, necessarily everyone's learning these languages to a high level, but they're valuing every bit of their multilingual repertoire and they're becoming sensitized to the existence of these languages in their, in their community. Absolutely. So then people are no longer just their fluency in each language, aren't they? It's how they are as a language user in general. Exactly. I think if we can think of it not just as being, oh, I'm an English speaker and I know this other language, but rather I'm in this multilingual world, I might have one or two languages, but they relate to all the other languages within this multilingual world. So to, to have what um, in Wales, I think they call a multilingual mindset in their curriculum, you could call it a multilingual outlook and so on, because I think that's quite different from when I was learning even at university, the ideal was to, I was learning French especially, to become almost like a French person, to become almost like a, uh, and sort of forget my English side and mimic as much as possible being a, a, a French person. Whereas now I think, even if you're very advanced in a language, I think the tendency in general at universities as well would be to, to value that to and fro from French to English and back again perhaps to other languages because that's the, you know, the reality of the world and it's so things like translation become more important valued as activities it's something we're doing all the time switching between languages translating between languages code switching which is this jargon for people mixing languages um if as, as, as they speak at home for example speaking one language to one family member who speaks back in another language and so on so we've discussed the benefits for the individual what are the benefits for the uk at a higher level, whatever are advantages for more and more people being involved with learning new languages? I'm going to 
give you about half a dozen answers, but they're all kind of related. So I won't uh, go into detail about any of them, but just let me know if, if I'm going on for too long or not long enough. <laughs> so um, business, economy, trade is a really obvious one because still most of the world does not speak English or understand English. Um, perhaps, you know, 20% a quarter do, but, but most do not. So, and even those that do, where we think, well, I can do business and trade in that area of the world because English is generally understood. The advantage it gives you if you can speak other languages is considerable. So business leaders always tell us. It really builds a personal relationship. It shows you're engaging, you're taking very seriously, uh, showing great respect for the culture that, that you're dealing with. It might mean that you can um, have kind of advantages like hearing people understanding what they're gossiping about if others your partners go off into a corner and you're at a disadvantage if you're not in the business sense if you're not really engaging in the, in the multilingual setting of, of, of the business so there's been various reports that have really put flesh on that argument and shown that the languages are really very important for you know UK's GDP gross domestic product really and that there's a bit of a loss in not having as much capacity as we sh we could have in those. So that would be one. Another, other whole other areas would be our soft power, really diplomacy, which is absolutely vital for our diplomats, but all the other other people who are on behalf of the UK in development as well, um, working in in other countries to engage with with local communities. It makes a huge difference in terms of what they can do if they can. You, you use the languages to their understanding of the society, sensitivity to the society. Also, in terms of, um, I talked about the UK as a multilingual society. So for social cohesion within the UK, you could argue that it's very, very important that um, there's some understanding of languages across different groups and communities so that we don't get different groups and communities not really communicating with, with, with each other. For example, going into... Um, back into the question of home and heritage speakers. If your grandmother speaks a language that you, um, you're at school and that you do not speak yourself or understand, but your grandmother does not speak that much English, that's sad for your internal family, for your understanding across the generations. And so that's quite an important factor that has been researched as well, that kind of intrafamilial cohesion. But then more widely, if, if again, this is thinking within the UK, the general community benefit, the pandemic was a real wake-up call because the issue of getting health, public health messages um, really taken up across the UK in a very deep sense, immediate sense, with all the complexity of the, the key health messages that were constantly changing from week to week was a real challenge. And it was through interpreting and, and translating it was um, a massive um, exercise that went on to try and get uptake of health messages. And people gradually realized that you couldn't just print stuff on a, on, a, on a flyer and publish it on the internet and expect it to get taken up. There's real work, not just of knowing d different languages, but of communicating often in person that was needed for that. So I think the pandemic was a real wake up call for that sadly showed that that, that social cohesion dimension of language learning within the UK as, as well for things like public health. And that takes me on to things like 
interpreting in, in law and in justice and courts and in police services more, more widely in health these are all really fundamental needs that we have for um, understanding languages within the UK as well as more outward facing internationally. So the British Academy and in particular your efforts have really emphasized the importance of learning a new language. What initiatives have been really been taken over the last few years to address the language learning crisis in the UK? At school level you need to break it down by nation, by the four nations partly for the reasons I've just mentioned. And I've, I've mentioned one initiative in Scotland, the one plus two initiative as well. In England, there have been various initiatives, some by the government, to try and get that figure that's just below 50% learning a language other than English up to the age of 16, back up to 75% is the current aspiration of the government, even hoping to get it eventually to 90%. So they have the EBAC measure, which is a, a package of, of subjects that schools are encouraged to encourage their students to take, one of which is a language other than English. <clears throat> so that's, you could call that a, 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 a performance measure um, that they encourage schools to encourage learners to take. However, that, that, that um, still has not quite worked as much as everyone hopes. And so other measures have been taken. There are hubs that, which are lead schools, which are successful at promoting languages, offering languages, that are then recruiting, training, say about nine other schools around them, in turn in their good practice, how to teach languages as interestingly as possible and to increase uptake. And those those schemes, there, there was a, those hub schemes were being run by the National Centre for Excellence in Languages Pedagogy. Now there's a new National Consortium for Languages Education, NCLE, if you want to Google it, which is taking up the mantle. It's a 15 million pounds investment in England, very new, to try and take that, to take that forward. And another initiative that has had some success in increasing uptake here and there is where you get undergraduates who are studying languages at university to go into schools with quite young learners who are year eight, year nine, it might be 12 or 13 year olds. Not just, so it's not just people like me, old people going in and lecturing yeah. people about <laughs> business this and, and this, this and this. But it's actually people who are a bit closer to their age, that they can relate to a bit more, probably a bit cooler than people like me, <laughs> and and creating a and and even though it's not just tutoring, it's not just oh I'll help you with your homework, it's actually creating a mentoring relationship where they can help them a bit, they can talk to them about why they're studying languages, why they love it, what they hope to do with it, and so on. And there are really good schemes that have promoted that kind of mentoring and it's really good for the undergraduates as well because they get a great experience from it it's some indication that for some of them it opens their eyes to a possible teaching career a little bit more because we're really short of languages teachers and in some universities the the undergraduate themselves will even get some credit for it as part of their degree course that they're studying because it's they get proper training for it so it's really it's a really wonderful scheme it's been pioneered in Wales, again, actually, by something called the MFL Mentoring Scheme, 
And I think they're now going into over half the schools in Wales. It's it's phenomenal, involving several universities. We haven't got something that extensive yet in elsewhere in the UK, but there have been schemes in England, in Northern Ireland, now coming in to view in, in Scotland. But that's but they've been evaluated and there is some good evidence, promising evidence, that this does, does actually succeed to an extent in increasing then the number of learners who decide to take a language other than English at GCSE. So so that's a good one as well. I should say for England as well that the government has had a scheme of trying to promote Mandarin in particular amongst amongst learners. And that's been obviously that's you know, relatively small uh, proportion of the overall number of the cohorts of, of people who might do GCSE. But that's a successful scheme as well. So that's really, really welcome. So there there are two or three of the schemes that have been developed. Yeah, and I like that they are developing not just the, they're not just showcasing how important and interesting it is to learn languages, but also it's developing just especially with that example of the university students who are going into mentor, it's developing their mentorship skills. It, you know, it's just a really nice example of how connected language learning is with so many other skills and so many other things that you want to be able to do and communicate. Yeah, absolutely. And and another one that's that's new and um, that's a new tool that's been um, developed. And I'd be grateful for any suggestions you have, Caitlin, or the other people in the language community about how to use it, um, is a web portal. So it's called, anyone viewing this can just easily find it by Googling the Languages Gateway. So the Languages Gateway. Um, it's a, a portal that the British Academy and others have developed for finding out anything about opportunities, information, resources, initiatives in relation to language learning in the UK. So it's you, this is where, if you go there, you can do a quick search using the filters and at school level, university level, other sectors, you can just find out about what's going on in your area, different languages, different opportunities, um, schemes, whether it's mentoring or, or what, what, whatever it is. And we developed that because we thought there's a huge number of fantastic initiatives and examples of good practice out there, inspiring examples, resources for teachers, but they're a bit all over the place. And so this portal doesn't itself contain a load of new stuff, but it organizes it all. So it sends you back out to, to the different parts of the web to wherever you want to go to find it. It, it asks you, what are you looking for? And then, then tells you where to get it. So, but that we hope in future might then be a tool that can be used to be a bit more proactive and get out there and promote languages, perhaps using celebrities or people like that saying why languages are important for them. I really like how it's taking all of those resources and putting them in one central place. I know I've, especially having moved to the UK, trying to find all of the different networks, all of the different resources, what's go what is taking place in the UK. Yeah. It takes a lot of time and a lot of effort, and you really have to have that time and effort to do that searching. Yeah. I mean, especially if you were to apply this for people who are heritage speakers or heritage learners yeah. or their parents who are trying to encourage that language development. I mean, for them to be able to go to the resource easily, yeah. there's such a benefit. Yeah. So that's fantastic. Uh, so we'll make sure to add that in our links for our show notes. And Terrific. Everything. Yeah, thank you. Now, with my teacher hat on here, I feel like I like to try to encourage my students to study language learning and to learn new languages and all of that. 
but that's obviously really individualized and it's it's only how much I can talk to them about it. Are there any sort of recommendations that you have for if someone isn't interested and really passionate about learning new languages, how can they become involved? Is it starting with the Languages Gateway? So how can they become involved in promoting language yes. learning and supporting it? Yeah. Yeah, it's a really good question. I definitely go to Languages Gateway, have a look, see what organizations are out there because that's where you'll find them all. We've tried to put all the main organizations and their activities there, but in a way that they're quite easily locatable. Um, so you don't get too much lost in, in the detail. And um, yeah, depending on whether you're a, you're a teacher or a learner or, or, a, or a parent, there, there are lots of really good organizations. And I suppose I'd say go through the organizations because and be active in the organizations because they're really themselves passionate, desperate to improve the situation of, of language learning in the UK. So um, I'd say for the schools sector, the Association of Language Learning, ALL, go to their website or get to it through the Languages Gateway is 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 wonderful and they've got if there's a particular topic or theme or problem that interests you often these organizations will then have special interest groups that are working on that particular topic for example in ALL they've got one special interest group that is looking at decolonizing the curriculum is is the modern languages curriculum sometimes unwittingly unintentionally biased and not particularly appealing to all groups in a, in a way that could be improved if you like so there are also or again if you're if you're a university academic working languages the equivalent there would be the university council of one languages the ucml which has again a range of special interest groups and does great campaigning work on behalf of languages so there are lots of different um groups i mean another one actually that that i'm involved in going back to ALL, Association of Language Learning, they've got a group that is particularly trying to support heritage community home speakers of, of languages as well, because that's a sector that is rather under-supported. It receives very little in the way of public public finance, for example. And yeah, so I'd say I'd say go through, perhaps I'm, I'm a bit too much of an organization person, I don't know, but I think that, that that's a really good way of getting involved, because I think Obviously, the main thing is to do what you can in your local school or, or your local um, area. But if you get to the point you're doing something that's really successful and you think, I'd really like others to learn from this, I think it would be through the organizations. But I never would um, underestimate just the importance of doing something in your local school. I mean, I, I actually ended up through a series of accidents, really, um, although I'm a university languages lecturer and researcher. I ended up for three years recently teaching in my local primary school because my youngest was was still there and I happened to know the person who was teaching languages there. So they got me to go in once a week just before school to teach languages. And it was absolutely wonderful. I, I loved every minute of it. But that, I suppose, was not something that has, you know, fed into some big national initiative. But it's it's one of the most enjoyable things, certainly, that I've done. And, and, and I hope for the kids it was it was helpful so i think it's both doing local things but also things that can scale up to use another jargon word yeah yeah no i think those are excellent points and uh, we'll make sure we link all of these out for everybody and we'll we'll include those resources so 
I know we're getting close to our time. Is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners, tell everybody about, or anything you just, any last thoughts of appeals to learn languages? I think simply um, that just to learn languages at any stage of life, what frustrates me the most, and you must hear the same, is when I go and get my hair cut and the guy cutting my hair, what hair there is to cut, says, oh, languages, I was useless at mm-hmm. languages at school. That's that's such a failure, I think, of our um, society and our education system, if lots of people are, are saying that. Because no one's bad at languages. People learn at different rates, have different ways of learning. But as we know, you, you put someone in the right um, situation and all kinds of people learn English, so all kinds of people then should should learn other languages as, as well. So I think just to have the confidence to think, I might have my own learning style, I might I find it a bit frustrating at school, but that at any point in my life I can learn a language. Because the last point that I'd like to end on would be that even if you haven't learned a language until you're in your old age, it's really good to start learning. And that's not just because it's fun and something to do, and a way to pass the time and so on to broaden your mind but also it can help with potentially with health because there's some very interesting research you may you may be familiar with it that's beginning to show that language can help build up what the scientists call your cognitive reserve which potentially if you keep on doing it, it doesn't matter how good you get at it as long as you keep on doing it practicing it can even potentially stave off the symptoms of dementia or increase stroke recovery time. So I'm not, obviously, that's all got a health warning. I'm not promising it. I'm not an expert in that research. But there is some very promising research beginning to show that. And there again, it's not just for the individual, but publicly as a society. Wow, you know, dementia drugs are so difficult to produce. There's been so little success for those. What if we find that language learning, not just because it's an activity like um, doing a crossword, puzzle but because the particular things that you need to do with your mind like suppressing one word in English in order to produce the other word that apparently is really good for your cognitive reserve and for your um, the health of your brain so it's never too late to start would be my my closing slogan I suppose I love it I think I I strongly agree I think that's fantastic so thank you so much for uh, taking out the time to talk to us about language learning and these different initiatives. I think this has been a really interesting podcast. Um, In particular, I think that it's been great to learn more about how we can get involved, but also what's going on and and how we can increase these numbers for language learning. So thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you, Caitlin. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. It's been a pleasure to have you. And we have just one episode left in the series. Marie will be interviewing Professor Emma Marsden, who will be discussing what changes are coming for language learning, specifically at the secondary school level, to encourage more students to study languages. To find out more behind-the-scenes information about this topic or about our podcast, please visit our website, languagescientists.dmu.ac.uk. This is where you can go to ask questions, leave comments, or even participate in our current research. We would love to hear from you. So thank you for listening, and thank you to De Montfort University for funding this series of the podcast. I'm Dr. Caitlin Zavaleta, and you've been listening to the Language Scientist Podcast. Podcast.